Hi everyone, Wesley here. Wanted to announce that I'm super excited about the release of the Avant Long Sleeve. Much in the same way you may change your tires uh, in the winter, the long sleeve variant of our hero product, the Avant Tee, was a natural progression for the assortment. And it hit the website within the last couple weeks, so they're now there for you to purchase. Uh, just visit standard-h.com and then hit shop, and then under the shirts category, they'll be the first things listed. And I've been wearing them for the last several months myself, and I've just been loving them. So I think you will too. So hit up the shop, and if you're not a part of the paddock, become a paddock member, sign up with your email. You will get notifications first before anybody knows anything about anything revolving around Standard H. And you will also be extended offers that no one gets, uh, whether you're on Instagram or not. Uh, thank you so much for the support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki... Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop, and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job, and like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. Ben Tarlow has a history with vintage cars unlike most who've been on this podcast. He and I were introduced by friend of the show Kyle Snar, and we hit it off immediately. We were less than five minutes in when I learned about Ben's family business, one I've been familiar with as well as a big fan of for decades. Ben decided to go in a different direction professionally, however, and began his vintage car import business. Primarily dealing with Alfa Romeos in the greater New York area for several years, it wasn't until the pandemic that he formed Morton Street Partners alongside two of his friends. Located in New York City's West Village, Ben and his partners have created something rather unique that blends cars, art, and commerce like I've never seen before, and at the root of the operation lies inclusion and growing collector communities, which I find to be really inspiring. This was a super fun and fairly concise conversation, so I'm excited to not only share it with you, but also for the prospect of following up with the MSP guys very soon. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. <laughs> Well, Ben, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great yeah, to be here. Absolutely. So you have, I believe, a Massachusetts phone number. <laughs> you found me out. I am not a native New Yorker. I uh, born and bred, as they say. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, Boston suburbs. Whole family is still up there. Cool. Nice. What was childhood like? Were you, I mean, are you a huge Red Sox guy? Like, what, what's, what's the uh, Boston? Well, yeah, family's very into it. Um, I was less so into it. Um, you know, I, I think uh, sort of normal sports didn't do it for me as a kid. It's a big reason why I'm sort of involved in motorsport now is I needed a competitive, you know, um, way to sort of 
vent. You know, you know I needed a, a, a sort of thing to do, but uh, I just never, none of that ever clicked with me. Right. So did you race cars growing up then? No. And that was the thing. I was never allowed even a go-kart. So I oh. had to wait until I was an adult to do it myself. But baseball was just too slow. Right. You know, they Got made it. me do little league. It didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. Understood. Um, what did your folks do? Uh, so my family is in the shoe business. Um, we have a sort of old multi-generational, uh, men's footwear company called Alden, um, which is kind of best known for the sort of original tassel loafer. Yep. It's my late grandfather's design and the banker's shoe of the sixties. Um, and it's still in the family. My dad still runs it. Um, it's kind of a, a neat thing that as I get older, I realize increasingly how interesting and unique it is. It was just some shoe factory as a kid. I figured everyone had a shoe factory. You know, That's hilarious. <laughs> so. And, and, um, this only further demonstrates how well I don't know you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I wore a pair of Alden's all day yesterday. Did you? Um, yeah. The, uh, Todd Snyder collaboration with, mm. they did a, a green, like, um, suede indie boot. Yeah, of course. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wore those all day yesterday and I have a pair of LHS on order. Uh, I'm a huge Alden guy. I had no idea that about I'm, this. I'm flattered. You know, it's funny again, because I don't work in the family business, neither my brother nor I do. Um, how do know, your parents feel about that? Well, I think it's, it's one of those things where like most family businesses back in the day, that's what you did. You know, my dad's the third generation in our family. Right. Uh, my great grandfather was sort of, uh, basically bought it out from Charles Alden. It was, I think a merger sort of thing way back, but yeah. Um, in the modern world, it's, it's considered not particularly wise to push your kids into a business. You know, I think the ideas from my parents' perspective, you know, let, let us do what we naturally want to do. And I like shoes, but I don't love shoes. Absolutely love cars. And that's the story of my career so far. Got it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's cool. We love, we love the company. I love that you're an Alden fan. I meet closet Alden fans, so to speak, everywhere I go. And, and it's, again, because my last name is an Alden, you know, it's not uh, perhaps so obvious. Right. Well, and the funny thing is, too, I used to run a store for Alan Edmonds. So like, ah, the competition. We used to get out of here. We used to have to talk to talk about you guys constantly for fitment purposes mm -hmm. and, and things of that nature. Yeah. 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 yeah so um, on a certain level, I'm still very much an Alan Edmonds guy, but they do not make a comfortable loafer for my foot. So thus the LHS. That's been my, my long running joke with my dad. You know, every time I'm frustrated, it's like, you know what? I'm going to go to Alan Edmonds. <laughs> so <laughs> as a, this is getting very tangential, but, um, for years and years, I love Chaka boots. I'm actually wearing a pair of battered Alden Chaka's right now. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, I was just pestering my dad for years and years. I'm like, I want a gray suede. He's like, there's nothing out there I like, you know, I'll look around, but no promises. And I'm thinking, how hard can it be? And I kept saying, you know, I bet Alan Edmonds has a nice gray suede. And I bet I could just walk in and get it today. And so I ate my words because just recently he just produced this gorgeous pair of sort of prototype chukka boots in this new gray suede they, they got in. And I'm like, you have to make these. This is like the greatest thing I've ever had. When are they out? I, I hope... I, I can't answer to their production schedule, but maybe later this year, next year, I don't know. Sometimes okay. I should so, have worn them today. So we can talk about it. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, there's no secrets in the shoe world that I'm aware of at least, you know, that's amazing. But it's um, cause that sounds like right up my alley as well. I love gray. Yeah. I'm wearing a gray shirt. <laughs> it goes, goes with everything. It really yeah. does. That's incredible. Um, there has been a boot that I've had in mind that I cannot find. Mm. And uh, we should talk offline about that. And Wait, not we'll go into my secret uh, shoe prototype lair that <laughs> that I don't have. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, exactly. I'll pass it along to the powers. Yeah, that just be. kind of slip the note, you know, <laughs> across his desk. Wesley um, boot. Wow, this is really interesting. So you've always been a car guy since you were young. Yeah, I um, I went through some phases as a kid. I my sort of first love was sailing and boats. Cool. Um, I think just because as a kid, you can go out in a little sailboat, but you can't drive a car. Um, but I've always loved things that move, um, you know, transport freak, anything. And, uh, you know, my dad's a, an aviation enthusiast has always had little airplanes. Um, oh, cool. so I, in my teens, I got a pilot's license and I, I did that and that was fun. Did you get your pilot's license before your driver's license? No, I wasn't that kid. Cause you know, I was, um, in uh, at a boarding school at the time. 
and then into college. And so I just do it in the summer. And it's not really the best way to get a pilot's license because you do two months, three months of training, and then you don't do it for eight or nine. For nine months, yeah. And then you have to kind of, so I, I probably had more hours than anyone by the time I had the ticket just because it took me forever. All the, you know, but it was, it was fun to get. I don't really use it in my adult life. I was going to say, have you kept current or? No, it's, it's one ruinously expensive hobby at a time. Yeah. Um, and the cars have won for now, but never say never, you know? Right, right. That's, I've always yeah. wanted to get my pilot's license. Um, my uncle, uh, growing up, he was a, a captain for U.S. Airways. Really? Uh, well, Very it cool. was Piedmont at the time. Uh, pri- of course. Prior to, to U.S. Airways. And his daughter got her pilot's license before her driver's license. So she was that kid, um, Heather. But um, interesting. So that's that's really cool. Um, you have been buying and collecting, I guess, primarily vintage cars, correct? Yeah. You know, I have a story with cars, I think, that a lot of people in our age group um, kind of share. And that is as a, a child of the 90s um, and the early 2000s, a lot of my sort of car education came from modern media. Sure. Um, in particular, you know, I had Gran Turismo on the PlayStation back in the day, uh, watching early Top Gear clips when, when YouTube first came out mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s when no one had heard of a BBC2 radio, a radio TV show. Um, it felt like the radio era so long ago now. Yeah. Um, but that was the thing. And, and what ended up happening for me, um, a couple of kind of things clicked you know, having that just background sort of genuine enthusiasm for cars. Um, when I was in college, I was doing, as Tom mentioned earlier, an art history degree. And uh, I took uh, the maximum amount of time abroad that the school allowed. I basically did a, a full junior year in Europe, plus, you know, some time either end. And it got to the point where I really was out of credits. They were like, you, you can't stay, you, you won't graduate, you know. But in that time... Uh, because I wasn't doing much homework, you know, I was, I was really kind of jumping around the European car scene. Right. And it's funny how things come full circle. I, I remember hearing about, I was studying abroad in Paris that spring. And, um, I remember coming home from class on a Friday and just by chance seeing a thing about this weird show called Retromobile. Okay. You know, Retromobile now is, a, it's a major industry event, um, you know, Art Curial does a big auction there. It's like the, the European classic car trade show. And there I was 20 years old, you know, some college kid. I just kind of snuck in the back and was yeah, right time, right mind place. blown. Wow. You know, so that was, where did a, you, where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to Emory down oh, in Atlanta. Oh, cool. In Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. My grandfather went to medical school there. Oh no, that's see, that's, that's what they're really good for. Liberal arts. It's like, you know, that school is, is a major powerhouse for lawyers and doctors. But if you want to be you know, an undecided liberal arts kid, probably better places to be. I don't, I don't know. Right. Right. After graduating from Emory, what, what was kind of the first gig? Uh, the first gig was, you know, I think this is common with a lot of people who graduate with a art history degree and maybe a drinking problem. (laughs) Um, no, but it's, uh, you know, all of my friends were, were upping sticks and moving to New York. Um, And I kind of, I wasn't planning on being in New York City in particular. I'm from the Northeast, so I said, well, maybe I could go back to Europe. That would be really cool. It's kind of tough at the time. Um, And so a friend of mine was working um, for Heritage, the auction house on Park Avenue. Sure. And she was in the luxury accessories division. They had just opened a, um, it was, I guess, a mix of of, uh, the jewelry department, but also their Birkin bag and sort of collectible handbag department. Uh, sort of venture was really gathering steam. And so they brought me on as a sort of three day a week, minimum wage intern kind of guy. And they were so slammed. I ended up um, kind of, it was sort of a funny, awkward corporate thing. My internship became full time, even though it wasn't supposed to. And I was there for, I think it was like six or nine months. Um, It's kind of my first year in the city. And, you know, I, on the one hand, very grateful to my friend Rachel who got me the gig and met some great people, um, at that auction house. Uh, but also learned front and center why I never ever wanted to work at an auction house ever again, or indeed have a boss ever again. Um, and so I was fired in, I guess it was May of 2013 for what? Well, (laughs) I was not supposed to really, I was an intern that has kind of a expiration date and there were probably 3 million girls in this city who would have killed for my job. 
but I didn't know much or care much about handbags. So they kind of figured out we could probably get someone full time for his role that would just love it. And, you know, maybe we're doing him a favor too, if we kind of like end the internship. (laughs) Right. I see. They threw me a a cake party. It was really sweet. So it wasn't really firing. No, but it was the 5 PM, like Friday, like come to the office kind of thing. Oh, no kidding. Um, and that's again, auction houses for you. The, the individual people are great together. The corporate structure can get kind of spooky. Right. Uh, and by that time, you know, the one thing I learned that was very positive from heritage, uh, is that if you look at your average auction house specialist, uh, a lot of these guys ended up doing what they're doing for the auction house after having had a career solo or maybe as a dealer broker in their various disciplines. And so it became clear to me that I wanted to pivot to cars. I knew that I felt ready to do it. Um, I mean, I wasn't, but I felt it, you know, right. Sure. You know, the idea was, well, maybe if I go out and do my own thing for a couple of years, worst case, I can just come back to an auction house as a specialist. And, you know, at least I know the ropes. Right. Um, somewhat. Um, but the rest is sort of history because I, I had an idea in my head brewing at the time from my year in, in Europe, which was there's so many cool, strange cars overseas that we never got. And despite that, you know, famous 25 year rule that we have here, uh, at the federal level for uh, imported cars, even if you wait that long in the classic car world, there's just a million cool things. Right. Not necessarily particularly expensive uh, things. So I almost immediately upon leaving Heritage, um, I it was it was just about the start of summer, and it felt like a great time to go overseas and just kind of see what's out there. And I I was like, I'm going to go find a, a car and bring it back and just do it as a dry run. Um, and so, you know, what ended up happening, my, one of my great loves still to this day is Alfa Romeo. Cool. And I really had the hots for a step nose coupe, kind of an early sixties, um, you know, uh, sprint GT, sprint GTV. Um, and I found one in the Netherlands randomly in Utrecht and, uh, bought it, brought it back. Um, fantastic car, uh, ended up selling it quite well. And the sort of little business had begun. Um, wow. Yeah. That's, that's the origin story of my, of my previous, uh, gig, which was, which was what mid century motoring. Yeah. My, my previous little single man brokerage dealership. Oh, cool. And that was based here in the city. That was just North of the city in Westchester. Okay. Um, I still have that physical space. It's a warehouse space up by Peekskill. And you know, obviously that's the dealer license and the truck and trailer, the infrastructure. Um, so it's, being put to good use now in my, in my new life. But, um, I started that all, it was eight years ago now. Wow. Um, just to kind of get my feet wet and transact and bring cars in. It was purely an import, um, shop. So were you, so when you launched that or with that first alpha, Mm -hmm. were you a licensed dealer yet? Or were you like, like, how did this begin? And like, did you save up money from your job to, to buy the car? Like, did you get some help? Or? I probably spent every dime I made at Heritage on that first car, and it wasn't an expensive car. Got it. Um, no, it was. I, I wanted a, a very lean model, and um, New York State is quite strict uh, with dealer licenses. It's a very low bar. It's like if you sell more than three cars, technically you need a dealer license if you're doing it commercially. No, that's um, annually. It's sales? annually. Yeah. yeah. So even people with collections sometimes unknowingly violate that. Um, oh. it's a question of whether or not it matters or will they get caught. But certainly if you're, if you're going to go into it professionally, right. And it's actually the hardest part of getting a dealer license is finding the zoning and finding a place. And I was very, very lucky, uh, and still am to this day to, uh, meet the right landlord upstate by the old nuclear power plant, you know, no rules, just right. <laughs> and, uh, it was a seven car warehouse, um, little warehouse that I, I rented for not a lot of money. And that was, you know, the inspectors came from the DMV and they, they thought I was nuts, but they could see no reason not to give me a license. Why, why did they think you were nuts? They're like, you're going to do these funny old little Italian cars in the back of this warehouse that no one can see from the road and this and that. I'm like, guys, it's a new world. I don't need store frontage right. on a busy street. There's no wacky whale whaling inflatable tube man. There's no balloons. I just need a place for the cars, the right. license, you need and storage. the internet, you know, yeah. the rest is, is fine. Instagram, quite frankly, is what you need now. Right. So, um, 
it all kind of clicked and I did that within the first year and, and shortly after I had a container of five other little mostly Italian cars coming over and it just snowballed from there. So when you were kind of um, inspired to work within this space, primarily Italian cars, is that because that was an aesthetic drive for you? Like, were you just always physically attracted to those vehicles or is it, is it Italy? What is, what is it about these things? It's funny. They never came out of Italy or very rarely. And the joke is the Dutch bought all the good Italian cars out of Italy in the eighties. The other joke is that the Italians are impossible to deal with. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. if you don't speak the language, prepare to get, you know, screwed. Got it. Um, but, uh, no, I just, I, I love, I think like so many car people, I have a particular soft spot for the intersection of Italian design and Italian engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate in my professional life to have driven at this point, a lot of cars. Um, and I, I love British cars. I love some German cars more than others. Um, I love French cars, certainly even Spanish cars randomly. But, um, I think I always kind of Italian cars feel like home. Right. Which is weird because I'm not Italian. But, right, right. Um, but there's very few things that can match the, just the, the word is beauty, the elegance of an Alfa Romeo at every level, every input. Um, big, big fanboy. This new venture we'll get to, a big edge part of this is education. Right. Um, but in my uh, experience in the classic car world, it's hard enough when, you know, I started this, I was 22, 23. Um, it's hard enough to deal with the kind of generic baby boomer classic car person to begin with. But it's even harder when you run into those stereotypes. And in the case of say a sixties alpha, extremely, extremely robust car mechanically, Mm. the Achilles heel, like a lot of European cars was the sheet metal. And I've heard there's a a theory that they were using uh, a Russian um, steel in the body of the cars that was too high in sulfur. And that was why they were just a little more rust prone. Right. But it's not, I've never actually seen if that's been proven. Um, And some of these cars rust away when you look at them and others don't, but they're no more or less reliable. I really should knock wood when I say this. I've had, I think, 15 classic alphas in in my driving life. I've never, ever been stranded by one. Funny. Um, How were you getting the word out early days eight years ago? Uh, the biggest thing for me, so my, my business shifted in the eight years that I did it. Um, as I said, I started out, uh, with this import model and I was trying to bring in stuff that I found interesting that was not, you know, necessarily sold here in the States. So that was, you know, things like certain alphas, Lancia Fulvia is another car I adore, uh, Land Rover Defenders obviously have become very popular. Um, I like to think I was one of the early guys cause they had just started to become legal, uh, the early ones to and import. Yeah, to import, you know, nowadays you go to the port, it's just defenders as far as the eye can see. But back then it was it was a tough thing to do because there was just the first wave of fraud as well. And customs was very prickly about them. Mm. Um, I knew a restorer who would paint, if you wanted a truck painted a different color, he'd actually leave the firewall in the engine bay painted the original color just so customs wouldn't get spooked. Because they'd, they'd be pulling history reports on these trucks and they were just going over them with a with a fine tooth comb. Right, right. This gray truck says it's green. Yeah, or I can see that it used to be this. And like, if you go, oh, well, yes, look in the engine bay. We just did a surface paint job. The VIN number is still there. It's all very, you know, um, people were, it was, it was a tough time. Got it. Um, but those trucks were, were great and they were a, a big part of the business in the early days. But anyway, the, to answer your original question, um, I started going to a lot of events and you know, I started bringing cars out to a lot of events, uh, whether it was just something as simple as a cars and coffee or a concours, you know, it's, um, that was where you start meeting people. And what ended up happening within a few years was, uh, I became a consignment house. Uh, I became a broker and wasn't the plan, but it made a lot of sense. And as Europe got more competitive, more people were importing cars, they were getting, you know, wise to the price deltas that existed, bring a trailer emerged. And, you know, now they just sell directly to us. You know, they get rid of all their shit on bring a trailer and right. we, we buy it. Um, it was a perfect time to pivot. So the rest of my career as mid-century motoring on my own was as a consignment house. Which is also easier on the pocketbook, I would imagine. It is. I was never, you know, I, I never had the funding model to, you know, buy millions and millions of dollars worth of inventory. And right. so 
yeah, I was able to work at a higher level of car without the outlay. But the flip side of, of that is consignment is brutal. You know, you are between a rock and a hard place with your seller and whoever is buying it. And so in what way? Well, there's always, you know, especially at the the sort of um, end of the spectrum I was working in. You know, these were cars between, say, 50 and 150K generally. Um, you know, you try and take your 10% or whatever the cut is. But the first thing that falls to the wayside in a deal is your cut. Right. Because, you know, you'll end up with two grouchy old men and they're three grand apart. And you want this $80,000 car to move. So you, you cut into your fee or you make one unhappy and the other's really happy. And it's, it's a lot of people juggling. It's right. really, really good practice. Um, but it's funny, my, my two partners now both have worked on the much higher sort of price range end of it. And they assure me, they said, oh, Ben, you're missing the trick. Cars above a half million dollars, so much easier to sell. Because money's no object. Buy yeah. them, yeah. yeah. So I, I was through the school of, of hard used car dealer knocks. That's how I look at it. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that, having sold Audis um, myself. And yeah, I mean, every everybody wants to, to fluctuate the price and get the best deal. But the first mm-hmm. thing that comes off that deal is the commission. So oh, yeah. you're basically telling the salesperson to their face, I don't want to pay you. Right. <laughs> Like you, you don't need to pay your rent this month, you know, because my car and my backpack or, you know, pocketbook is, is more important. And it's, it's hard to, you know, there was always a question and this is what ended up, um, you know, having me kind of switch things up in recent times with this yeah. new venture. Uh, you do get sick of working alone. Um, I only had so much bandwidth and I had a very strong consignment pipeline. I was turning away cars, which was a great feeling. Um, you know, I expanded the warehouse up there. I had space for uh, maybe 15 at most. But, you know, 15 cars and one guy, if it's a busy month, it's a really busy month. And when it's not, you're sitting on extra real estate and you've got all these cars sitting there looking at you. And, you, you know, it's like doubly hard um, no matter which way you peel it. And I just started to burn out a little bit Yeah. and say, you know, it'd be awfully nice to, I mean, originally I thought maybe I'd bring someone into the business really hard to scale it that way. Right. Um, I thought maybe I'd do a real estate play up there and maybe get into the storage biz as well. That's very trendy right now. Right. Sure. Again, majorly frustrating. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's crazy how things go, but it all, as with most things in life, you know, you take a circuitous route and you get there in the end. Yeah. So let's talk about the new venture. Like what's it called? What are you guys doing? You've got two partners. I met one. Yes. Uh, so we are Morton Street Partners, MSP. Um, and it's myself, it's uh, Tom Hill and Jake Auerbach. Um, so the three of us have all, in our own ways, been in the classic and collector car world now for years. Um, we're all young guys. We're all in our early 30s. Um, and we have kind of a similar gripe, I like to think. And the gripe is that we are very, very sick of dealing with the collector, classic, exotic car industry, call it what you will, we're, we're sick of, of the sort of status quo. Um, we you know, have identified that the buying pool for collectible cars uh, is it's too gated, especially at the higher end. Uh, it's too insular. And we said, you know, the reality is right now in this economy, a collector car is the same as any collectible. It's a quote-unquote alternative asset. Right. And it's a real financial instrument these days. Um, and so it's doing everyone a disservice if this industry stays stuck in its kind of dinosaur ways where right, it the just... The same 50 people. Yeah. And they're all in their 60s and, you know, they, they all think they know everything about cars. And some of them do. Some of them really don't. But um, we, <laughs> we just decided that I think independently we'd all come to the conclusion that things needed to change. Um, and uh, a lot of serendipitous things later, you know, we're sitting here pre-launch in uh, the namesake of the company. This is 16 Morton, our new home. Um, really cool space. Yeah. It, this was Cynthia Rowley's uh, sort of headquarters originally. So it's a large drive-in townhome garage in the West Village that was built out as an art gallery. And uh, basically via, you know, uh, our sort of social circles, we, we knew the, the new building owner and 
Um, he was very excited about this project and this, I mean, we couldn't have built out a more appropriate space. Right. So when this came available, um, we've really been scrambling the last couple months because, you know, the concept almost comes from the space. It's all right. Now we have quite literally a venue, um, to elevate the car and, and introduce it to the, you know, the art and design and the fashion world. Um, here in New York City, in one of my favorite neighborhoods in New it's, York City. It's really cool given the provenance of the space as well. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, it's even cooler. We did a little history digging. So 16 Morton, the address here, uh, was one of the first uh, pre-war service stations. Oh, no kidding. In New York City. For there's cars. A, there's a great black and white photo of a big Gulf oil sign out front. And if you look on the floor, just over there, you can see where the old inspection pit was dug. Um and so this, this building is, is quite literally the history of the automobile in New York City, and it's coming, it's coming full circle. Are you guys getting a copy of said print to hang in here? I think we should. What we'd really like to do is probably grab a golf sign at some point, talk to the Landmarks Commission, see if we can do a, you know, a redux of its old facade look. Uh, who knows? I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. We were just thrilled. It, it felt like a good omen. Right. You know, um, and it's this is a very historic part of New York City, so the fact that that's part of its um, lineage, it's you know endlessly cool. Yeah, that's super awesome. Um, you've so how did you guys connect the three of you? Is it just similar circles overlapping? You became friends. I mean, were you competitors technically, given your respective businesses? Or well, I mean, it's a very small industry. Um, you know, of the three of us, I obviously had my own little shop uh, at the. His last uh, gig, Tom was working with um, Matt Ivanhoe, a cultivated collector, um, and you know they do some very, very exotic and and, and high end uh, blue chip collectibles. So I wouldn't have said that we were, you know, Matt Matt's shop and I weren't in competition so much. But sure. I'm very envious of some of the cars that they play with over there. Yeah, um, and Matt does a great job, you know, with with some of the stuff that he brings to to market. Jake was with RM Sotheby's. Um, I've always felt a certain um, as an independent dealer, I always felt a certain level of competition with the auction houses because I, I figured, sense. yeah, I could do it better, at least for the client's behalf. Um, that's not always true, but we like to, to think that. So the, the, by the time the three of us, we all met another friend of ours, um, Evan Sigler, who um, uh, works up at Miller. Uh, and he he's the sort of the dealer for the latest, you know, hypercars, the Paganis and Bugattis. And uh, he... Uh, put together a young industry dinner a few years ago where, you know, we would, a bunch of us under, roughly under the age of 40, would get together and it was different auction house people, different dealers, um, people in the finance, insurance, you know, all this kind of little group. And that's actually how I met, I think, both Tom and Jake originally. Was, um, the, was the dinner. With these hilarious Put on dinners. by Miller. So Miller's the dealership? It wasn't even put on by Miller, just Evan in his spare time oh, lives I see. here in the city. He's a young guy. I knew Evan from years ago. He thought about buying an Alpha from me. Didn't like the car in the end. No harm, no foul, but that's sure. how we met. Um, and so that dinner was, I think, at some level, the earliest catalyst. I, I knew who they were, and that's how we were acquainted. Um, and so I was basically sitting on my hands throughout the pandemic. Uh, I would, had been kind of in the shall we say, taking dinners phase in March of 2020. Right. Right as the world ended. Right. Um, and so I had to bide my time a bit uh, for a year. I, you know, was working on the, the little race car I'm building and, and doing some kind of bit gigs, but I really was kind of in purgatory. And by the time the pandemic was winding down and, and you know, Tom had, had also left his former job and I think Jake was, again, he had left... Um, Rally Road was his most recent venture. Um, he was, I guess, still in, involved, but not day to day. Um, the three of us just kind of found each other, and, and Tom had this, uh, you know, he kind of synthesized the thought and the concept, and, and the space was entering the picture this summer, and um, the rest, as they say, is sort of history in the making. Right, sure. You know. Cool. Well, we talked about the space. Um, it's here in the West Village. Mm -hmm. Um Let's talk about what's going to be in the space. Yes, absolutely. So let, what, what can you share about that and its future plans? Well, we're doing a, you know, if, if you envision, and it's, it's hard, I know we're, we're purely audio right now, to describe the space physically. Um, 
you know, it's what I joke, it's our mini Tate turbine hall. You know, it's, it's this sort of, it's, it's a kind of vast, you know, it's not actually a huge, huge space, but it, it feels vast. It's very tall. You know, we joke you could fit a fire truck in here. What, what is the ceiling height in here? It's got to be at least 20 feet. I, yeah, I think it may even be tickling 30 yeah, with the mezzanine. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's this kind of monumental space. And um, so we plan on, you know, we have this mezzanine sort of office upstairs, and, and we plan on kind of making that our home. It's our office. You know, it's no desks. It's going to be a nice kind of comfy lounge conference table. Um, and it's really meant to make people who visit us and want to chat with us and or clients, they don't have to be, but we'd like them mostly to be, um, you know, it, it makes a, a comfortable kind of place. And then this downstairs stretch of the gallery um, is the definition of flex because our plan is to do a quarterly um, rotating exhibition where we give the space to a museum or a artist or a or collector, um, someone interesting that we admire and want to collaborate with, we basically give it to them to curate. And the only thing we ask, the only parameter we give them, uh, is that we need to make the conversation between the art world and cars. Um, so we're, we're deep in planning for the first show, um, which is a, uh, a really exciting collaboration uh, with Kenny Schachter. Uh, and he in particular, you know, he's done a lot of crazy things in the art world. Um, we're, we're very fond of, of sort of Kenny's background, but in particular, he was, uh, he did this car with Zaha Hadid. Incredible. The, the Z car. Yeah. And so that's coming in. Um, and I think, you know, I won't know exactly what he's planning to do till he does it. That's part of the excitement, but sure. you know, this is a really good kind of thesis for us of how we see this working. Um, because there's a million different ways to cut this. And so four times a year, we're going to cut it, slice it differently, you know, um, and, and use that tying back into our model, you know, you know, use that as a conversation starter, as a social hub, as a way to cast a wider net, uh, for clientele, for clientele, for cars. Um, obviously it, it also allows us to broaden our business model as well. We have a great event space here. Um, we have infinite collaboration potential, and we're just really excited to shake up our work lives because we don't want to be used car dealers in the sort of traditional sense. Right, right. You know, we so my understanding, and Tom gave me a little heads up, that you're going to have a couple of platforms in here with, with cars mm. on the platform. Yeah, the plinths, as we call them. Um, that's a really important, we think it's a really important aesthetic consideration. Um, a lot of, of this model relies on showing non-car people cars in a new light. And so because quite literally we have gallery lighting in here, um, it, it follows that we should have the cars elevated. If you see a car in this space, because it has a large roll up door, it might read car and garage. Right. But if you walk in and it's presented as sculpture on a plinth, uh, we think that is a, a really kind of critical, um, piece of this puzzle. Um, and it, it does force you to interact with the car in a new way. You're looking at it now, it's a little closer to eye level, especially if it's a low sports car. Um, and it's maybe a little more immediate in your consciousness. You can view it as a sort of static object as well as a car. Um, and, and the kind of vehicles that we like and we work with, the closer and more intimate you become with them, the more you kind of discover their, their soul. Right. Um, my favorite example of that, uh, so I used to bring in you know, a Lancia Fulvia you know, little 60s Italian coupes here and there. And those were the sort of Italian Mercedes. And my favorite detail on basically any car ever is the dipstick on a Fulvia. Because right, okay. it's this amazing spiral. They didn't have to make it, you know, elaborate like that. It could just be a loop like any other car. Right. But they just, had, someone felt the need to do that out of some pot metal and make a little flourish. And you don't see that unless you're interacting with the car. It's the a, way the mechanic can enjoy the car it's yeah the uh the brush stroke of the artist the you know the artist's hand yeah in a way um and so we we think that that's inherent in a lot of different cars a lot of design and we want to really highlight that and and you know create a conversation around that bring people into the fold that way as opposed to the old car way which is wow fast zoom you know right cars right. man sure. amazing macho yeah no yeah that makes a ton of sense because i've i've very much am on the same page of, of finding 
very much um, the, these vehicles are sculpture, right? right? Like they are art. Um, and that the first I was I was ever kind of exposed to somebody presenting a car that way was like a video tour of Ralph Lauren's personal garage. Yeah. Where it's like black carpet, white plinth, cars, gallery lighting, that whole thing. With this space and the way you guys are going to display the cars, not unlike that, mm -hmm. are you guys bringing the cars in or is it the artist that brings the cars in? That depends. Um, you know, for example, with Kenny here, Kenny is a car collector. And so, um, you know, we are letting him, you know, the Z car obviously is, is one of them. And, and I think he wants to do, um, perhaps with his launcher, he has a, a homologation fulvia, a fanalone. Cool. Um, I believe he does some sort of, Tom knows this better than I, but he does some sort of audio visual art. Um, you know, for all I know, there might be an NFT of that car by this point. So, you know, in that case, we'd probably let, you know, we would let him curate the car side too, but there are absolutely people we plan and, and are talking with to collaborate with who, um, it may be on us and we're lucky to be in the orbit of some really, really incredible cars. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely in the making. Um, and that's the fun part for us too, especially because it doesn't have to be for sale. You know, this is purely for the spectacle, for the art, for the love of it. And, uh, it, it pays us back you know, in sort of less direct ways, but we don't want to lose the authenticity of it by saying, also let's shoehorn our latest, you know, managers special in. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that begs the next question almost is like how the business makes money, right? Yes, so you absolutely. guys are going to be making money through the sales of cars, but well, not necessarily yeah. those on display. Right. It's one of our revenue streams. Um, again, this is a very different business to, uh, most say car dealerships, whether they do collectible cars or new cars or any car, um, you know, we are all from a car selling background in various ways. Um, right. and we'll continue, you know, at some level to do that. Um, but I think that this also gives us an opportunity to, you know, branch out from that. And again, via these collaborations, you know, there's just infinitely different things we can do. And, and that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Sure. You know, yeah. With an Instagram account and the right amount of, you know, uh, you know, champagne Concord lawns, we could sell all the cars we need to live a very comfortable life. Right. But, um, you know, it's like, if you would, you, if you could, you would, you know, wouldn't you? And so here we are, um, we're going to double down on, on what it could be. Well, we always thought that kind of the penultimate version of this, of this industry, of these cars, of this world, what it could be. Right. You know. Cool. So you're giving away the space, obviously. So yeah. with that comes foot traffic. It does. We are operating much like any art gallery in the city, um, which is to say that it is by appointment. Um, we'll be hosting a bunch of different events in here. Sure. Not just glitzy gala openings, but maybe speaker series, um, you know, panel discussions, all sorts of different programming. Cool. Um, and I think we're trying to maybe launch some version of it one day a week where the general public can, you know, kind of sign up for a slot and we can do some sort of open house. We also literally can open the front of the building. Right. Right. You know, again, your, your listeners can't see it, but the front of this building is a massive garage door. Garage door. Right. And it's, it's half glass when it's shut. So it's, it's quiet and discreet in here, but when it's open, it is open to a busy corner of seventh Avenue and Morton street. And this is an open street. So every day this is shut for the restaurants. Um, and we're really excited maybe to play with that too uh, and do some kind of open house, quite literally open house nights. Right. Um, you know, again, we've, we've just got to jump in and see where it takes us. It's one of those unwritable business plans at a certain level. We right. kind of know how it'll work, but we're so excited about the parts we haven't figured out quite yet. So how did you guys go about financing it? Is it just a third, a third, a third? You guys obviously signed a lease on this place mm -hmm. i'm assuming so. yeah we're we're actually despite you know the address which is you know quite a, a ritzy area of new york these days uh, we are self-funded uh between the three of us and um you know we basically given what we're up to um you know it's one of these businesses where we can accomplish a lot without necessarily, we don't need to carry a $10 million inventory of cars. Right. Um, we can do a lot of, you know, guidance and brokerage and advisory, 
Um, and we also work with people we know in the car industry and they invest with us. Um, that's something we're really excited about doing that we've been trialing, you know, which is uh, on their end, you know, helping them to source uh, a really investment grade car. And then, you know, in our own unique way here, selling it to a whole new audience um, of extremely qualified buyers. Right. You know, we think about the sort of people who raise a paddle <clears throat> in the uh, evening sale at Christie's, you know, whatever it is, the, you know, and, and they don't blink spending in vast sums of money on, on these, on these paintings and these art objects. And, and, and so why can't cars also play in that league? Right. You know? Sure. Um, you also run track days. I did. Or, okay. So no uh, longer. Yeah. Well, no, I, I did. And then I got into vintage racing. And so oh. I, I was originally a, a track day bro. Okay. Um, I, a client of mine needed to get rid of a Lotus Elise and I'd always wanted a Lotus Elise. And so I bought it from him and I think I put like three or 4,000 track miles on that car. Wow. Just constant, you know, uh, and that was maybe six, five or six years ago. So I, again, I'd never, as a kid, I never had a go-kart every Christmas I asked, I said, mom and dad, I want a go-kart and my parents being, you know, um, sort of not motorsport people just thought that was an awful idea to put a child in the go-kart. It probably is at some level. Hate to say it. Um, so I had to wait and it was an eye-opening thing. Uh, I was very fortunate to meet some great track day groups here in the Northeast and there's a lot of great tracks. Yeah. So are you at Lime Rock or like, where are you going? Uh, all over. I mean, I used to do, I still do, you know, I think of all the tracks within a five hour drive of New York city. There's probably a dozen. Um, and I think I've driven almost all of them at this point, some, some many times. And so that kind of, uh, snowballed. I had the car. I started doing these track days and track days. The good ones at least are very structured and very educational. Um, you know, you start in the green group with an instructor handholding you and you go into the classroom a lot. And then as you progress, they've got, you know, the more advanced groups, you start soloing, um, all the way up to, if you want to finally become an instructor down the road, you know, people literally stay in the track day world their whole lives. That is their entire motorsport trajectory. But for me, uh, given my day job, um, vintage racing came up. It's very popular, um, worldwide, but up here, certainly in the Northeast, we have a, a very healthy sort of vintage racing contingent and my beloved, uh, mechanics in white plains, my Italian car whispers, uh, Frank and Santo nice at Dominic's, uh, Santo's an avid, avid racer and a member of the board of the VSCCA. And he said, you really need to come hang and come see this and come drive with us. So I got my license, oh, I don't know, probably four years ago now. Cool. And um, bought an old 73 Mini. <laughs> it was the first vintage race car. Awesome. And I had a bug eye sprite. Now I'm building a new uh, sort of Goodwood style, uh, early 60s uh, Cooper S race car. I Sweet. love my racing minis. And I have a wish list about as long as this table of different uh, race cars that I, I just have to have. Oh, man, that's amazing. So, well alongside the car world being in sort of like Christie's and that sort of stuff, yeah, like, yeah. uh, obviously watches have also kind of paralleled that trajectory. Absolutely. Um, you're wearing a Rolex. It, is it turnograph. Uh, yeah, it's a, well, it's a date. So I should admit I'm actually not a watch person and I can barely speak literally, uh, literally, I can literally about the watches that I own. I only own three. Okay. Um, this Rolex was a gift uh, from my late grandparents from my high school graduation. Oh, wow. Wonderful. And it's just one they kind of, it's a pretty simple one. Um, I wear it every day. I even wear it to the shop and I've gotten oil on it. I feel bad. I try and take it off, but well, that's all right. I wear it into the ocean. I just don't care. It's, it's my every day. I love it. It's a turnograph. Uh, it's a date just whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. Rolex. Blue, um, blue dial. Yeah, it's blue. It's got a red yeah. second hand, which red I've always thought hand. was yeah. kind of youthful and fetching. Um, and so I just, I, I live in this watch. Um, I inherited when he passed another uh, Rolex recently from my grandfather, um, which is a very pretty sort of two-tone Jubilee band kind of thing. And, you know, it's a little more formal and I, I've worn it recently to some weddings. Sure. Um, and then I have a, a NATO strap Seiko. Sweet. Which I always forget I own. And then I'm like, oh, I have that. And I yeah. wear it for like a week. And I'm like, this thing's sick. It's the best like 150 bucks or whatever you can spend. A hundred percent. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's funny. I'm surrounded by watch people yep. and I, I just got back. I do a, a driving event, uh, a sort of gentleman's track day with, with Bradley price, sure. Autodromo. 
And uh, there you go. Yeah, it's, you're wearing one. See, that's the thing. I'm guilty of never owning a watch from Bradley. And, oh, that, uh, there's, so I, there's plenty of time. <laughs> I, there's plenty of time, and I probably should buy one just so you know. Uh, I actually might me. see him tonight. Oh, well, there you go. You can tell him that I'm, I'm on his, his call list for that because I, I feel bad. I feel guilty. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, also a former guest of the standard age podcast. Oh, there you go. A, a very, um, you know, an esteemed, esteemed company I'm in. Yeah. Well, listen, man, this has been a ton of fun. Um, I will be sure to greet Bradley with, with your watch wishes. Uh, <laughs> I did buy a pair of string back gloves. So oh, he, cool. He Those are so I good. Don't support him, but I, I, I love them. Yeah. I have the all black ones. I love uh, them. See, I'm, I'm on the end. I have the, the rare out-of-stock uh, dark green ones he did. Oh, cool. Because I had a dark green alpha at the time. Oh, those are beautiful, man. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for having me. I'd like to thank Ben once again. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And while you're there, if you don't mind rating and even leaving a short review, it helps way more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram at Standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at Standard H underscore podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Standard H podcast in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening.